The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Well, uh, twice in my life I've had the privilege of serving on jury duty. And if you've ever served on jury duty, it can be quite interesting. I I mean that. I'm actually kind of, there's a a strange part of me that kind of likes doing jury duty once I get over the fact that my week has been wrecked. Um, Most recently, I served on a a case that on the surface seemed really cut and dry. It seemed really open and shut. Uh, There was a man with a a criminal record, and he was pulled over late at night um, for an illegal turn. And uh, he was driving on a suspended license, which led to the car being searched. And upon searching the car, the officers found a handgun, and it was wedged down between the driver's seat and the, and the center console, kind of wedged down in there in the seat, as well as uh, a digital scale with some drug residue um, on it in, in the back. And on the surface, it just seemed really straightforward. He's charged with driving on a suspended license, illegal possession of a firearm, as well as a, a drug or paraphernalia charge. I can't remember what it was. Um, however, he, he fights the charges. He lawyers up. He fights these charges, and he says that he was borrowing the car. It wasn't his. Uh, he claims that he didn't know that there was a, a gun in, in the car, and he didn't know anything about the scale or, or the residue on it. None of it, none of it's his. Now, in the end, the jury that I was on actually acquitted him of the gun charge and, and the drug charge, which I believe was actually the, the right verdict. I, I really believe that he, they weren't his, and he didn't know that they were in the vehicle. But along the way, I also learned something really important about the court of law, um, namely what it means to prove something beyond reasonable doubt, okay? See, in our court system, for, for a legal criminal charge, and you bounce this off the lawyers in the room, but uh, it's not enough to have a reasonable suspicion of guilt, It's not enough to have probable cause or even a preponderance of evidence. It's not even enough to have clear and convincing evidence. No, in order to get a criminal conviction, the prosecution must provide evidence that eliminates reasonable doubt, that goes beyond reasonable doubt, we say. And the Apostle Paul, right, in this section of Romans, that's what he's doing here when it comes to our understanding of sin and God's wrath. He's been building a case. Ever since Romans chapter 1, verse, eight, uh, verse 18, he's been building this case, and the jury has been sent out now. But there's a courtroom drama happening here at the end of, of, of Romans chapter 3. See, back in Romans 1, verse 16, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, right? He says, I'm not ashamed about the good news of, of Jesus. And the reason he's not ashamed of it is because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, Jews and Greeks. And the reason it's the power of God for salvation, he said, is because in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. God's righteousness comes to us through the gospel when we grasp it by faith. And the reason that's so important, Romans 1 verse 18 now, is because the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness. It's being revealed against sin. And we're all charged with this, both Jews and, and Greeks. That's what Paul's been doing from Romans 1.18 up through chapter 3, verse 8. He's been making his case. He, he's been saying, listen, Jews and, and Gentiles, all have sinned. 
All are due God's wrath, and therefore all need this gospel good news about the righteousness of God. And here now in our passage today, Paul's making his final arguments, right? He's summing it all up. What then, he says, or or what then shall we conclude? Are, Are we Jews any better off? Now, that's a strange question to ask because if you remember last week, he, he, he said, are we innovated off? And he said, yes, there's an advantage, right? But, but last week, he was dealing with the advantage of the Jews with respect to them being God's covenant people. It's not that there's no advantage at all, he said last week, but that there is no advantage when it comes to salvation, we saw. And so here, are we Jews any better off with respect to salvation if we understand the argument? No, Paul says, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. To, to be under sin is to deserve the, the wrath of God. All are under sin, Paul says. Therefore, all deserve God's wrath. And therefore, all need the gospel. That's where all this is headed. I mean, we don't, we don't want to forget that. Paul is... Paul is not the bearer of bad news, okay? Paul is the bearer of good news. That's, that's the whole point of Romans is good news. Right? But we have to understand the bad news. We have to not only understand it, but see how it applies to ourselves in order for the good news to really appear as good news. And so he makes his final arguments here. He's working to prove his case beyond reasonable doubt that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he does it here by making two points. First, he, he addresses the pervasiveness of sin, the pervasiveness of it. Secondly, he addresses in this passage the universality of sin. And, and of course, it's the universality of sin that leads to the universal need for the gospel, which, to quote from earlier, Romans 1.16, is the power of God for salvation for everyone. Universally, everyone and anyone who believes. Right? Again, Paul's concluding his case here, and he does so in a, a very relevant way, especially, especially for first century Jews. Right, if, you're, if you're looking at your copy of the scriptures right now, uh, you probably notice that a big portion of our text today is like, it's like indented. You see that in your copy there? It looks like a, looks like a quote or, or something like that, uh, verses 10 all the way down through verse 18. And the reason that it looks that way is because it is a quote, <laughs> or, or rather a series of quotations from the Old Testament. Paul here, what he's doing is he's, he's following a common rabbinical practice of stringing together passages like pearls. Like it, it's a string of evidence, to think of it another way. He's summing up his case. He, he quotes really seven Old Testament passages here. The the first we think is from Ecclesiastes and then five from the Psalms and one more from Isaiah. And and what all these passages do (laughs) is bear witness. They bear witness in different ways to our human unrighteousness. But don't forget verse 9. These aren't just verses that apply to the Gentiles. That's how a lot of the Jews would have viewed them as they read their Old Testament. Paul takes them and applies them to everyone. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. All of us, the the whole lot of us, Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And as we study this section of of the quotations here, we we get a sense here, not not just of the presence of of sin in in our lives, 
but the, the pervasiveness of sin in our lives. Okay, Paul's proving his point, remember? He's leading us to the good news through the trail of our need for the good news. He doesn't want us to merely agree that we are sinners. He wants us to grasp the problem of the reality of our sinfulness. And so layer after layer of evidence is brought forth here, exhibit by exhibit, right? Which we might call the effects of sin showing forth the pervasive nature of sin. In fact, theologians look to this passage to help us understand a really important doctrine in Christianity, a doctrine known as the doctrine of total depravity, right? Meaning our total lack of spiritual good and our inability to do good before God. It's our natural condition apart from any grace exerted by God to restrain or transform us. Total depravity. By total, we mean extent, all right? Sin twists and taints every part of our humanness. It doesn't mean that we do as much evil as we possibly could, that we are totally and completely depraved, but rather that every aspect of ourself is tainted, total in extent. Every part of us. We don't have some pure parts and some sinful parts. It's total. And therefore, we cannot even come to God on our own. All of our own efforts, even, apart from his grace, are still tainted. Even, as we shall see, are seeking after him. One theologian puts it this way, summing up the, the doctrine of total depravity and, and emphasizing the importance of this doctrine, saying, in summary, total depravity means that our rebellion against God is total. Everything we do in this rebellion is sinful. Our inability to submit to God or reform ourselves is total. And we are therefore totally deserving of eternal punishment. The wrath of God, Paul's speaking of in, in this section of Romans. He goes on, he says, it, it's hard to exaggerate the importance of admitting our condition is this bad. If we think of ourselves as basically good, or even less than totally at odds with God, then our grasp of the work of God in redemption will be defective. But if we humble ourselves under this terrible truth of our total depravity, we will be in a position to see and appreciate the glory and the wonder and the work of God. Well, just how total is our depravity? How pervasive is our sin? Well, Paul tells us here in Romans 3. Let me put it under, let me put it under eight effects of sin. All right, eight things sin affects in us this morning. Number one, our legal standing. It's verse 10. We see this in, in verse 10, if you look at it in, in your copy of God's word, um, where, where it says, none is righteous, no, not one. You, you notice it doesn't say uh, some are righteous. It says none are righteous, no, not one. Righteous here, to be righteous, it carries a positional status, a legal status before God, we might say. That because of sin, our legal standing before God is not one of righteous, but of unrighteous. We're not, we're not in good with him, like on our own. We're not good with God. We, we cannot stand before him on our own apart from Jesus. We are positionally at odds with God, unrighteous. Our sin makes us so. Our, our legal standing, see, is affected. Number two... Our minds are affected by sin. Verse 11. 
No one, what's the word? Understands. You see it there? No one understands. Sin doesn't just affect our legal standing with God in some cold, kind of forensic way. Our minds are affected by sin. Corrupted by sin. And and therefore, we we don't perfectly understand God's truth. Paul says in in Ephesians 4 that we're darkened in our understanding, right? And this is a good place to to note just how the Bible talks about sin and sinfulness. So you you might be tempted to to think here, uh, well, if I don't do X, Y, and Z, if I don't watch X, Y, and Z, or read X, Y, and Z, or think about X, Y, and Z, my, my mind won't be affected as much really at all by sin, Or maybe you're even tempted to think that your mind hasn't been affected by sin because you've worked so hard to guard your mind, right? But to think that way fundamentally misunderstands how the Bible teaches about sin, a more comprehensive way that the Scriptures teach us about sin. See, the Bible does not teach that you are sinful because you sin. The Bible teaches that you sin because you are sinful. There's a world of difference here. There's a religion of difference here. And we'll get into this more when we reach Romans chapter 5, but the Bible teaches us that we are sinful from our mother's womb, that we're born sinful. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, Paul says in Romans chapter 5. And here's why that matters. If you think that you are sinful because you sin, that the result of your acts of sin is that you are now considered sinful, the solution is to just stop it. Just stop sinning. (laughs) But if you rightly believe, as the Bible teaches, that you sin, that you commit individual acts of sin because you are sinful, well, then you need much more than to stop it. You need to be saved. You are, in fact, under the weight of total depravity. You can't just stop it. Even your attempts to stop it are tainted by sin. It's pervasive. It's total. The first effect of sin that we see in our text deals with our legal standing with God. The second, our minds. Thirdly now, our motives. Our motives. Look at the second line of verse 11. It says, no one seeks for God, it says. No one seeks for God. None of us really, truly, apart from God's work in us, seek after him. Jesus said it this way. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so if you are seeking after God, truly seeking after him, God has begun his work in you. You didn't muster that up on your own. In fact, you couldn't. But here we also have to be cautious, too, because a lot gets pulled under the umbrella of seeking. That isn't really God-seeking but rather is actually self-seeking. We've got to distinguish between the two. Think of the person who comes to the church for the very first time, or, or maybe the first time in a long time. Maybe this is you. <laughs> and, and you came because you, you're, you're having a rough go of it, you know? And maybe you've lost your joy, or, or you're feeling depressed or anxious. Maybe you've lost hope or are suffering. Maybe you have some tangible needs, and so you're turning to God. Let's see if Jesus can help, right? Or, or perhaps you're, you're, you're looking for a spiritual high, um, a little spiritual pick-me-up, like a, like a hit, a fix, an experience that makes you feel better. Now, hear me say this. Um, God gives us joy. He gives us his joy. Right? Uh, he'll bring peace into your life. He's the prince of peace. 
He'll settle anxious souls. He'll, he'll comfort you in your suffering. Sometimes he even provides miraculously in ways that we can't describe in tangible ways. But if that's all you're after, if that's all you're here for, you're not really seeking him. You're seeking his goodies for yourself. It's not him you truly want. It's what he offers that you truly want. Do you see how pervasive our sinfulness is? It even affects our motives. And you might not be seeking God. You might be using God to seek what you really want. That's different than seeking after him. Seeking God means you're trying to find him and him alone. You're trying to get into his presence. As a deer pants for water, the psalmist writes, so my soul pants for you, oh God, it thirsts for you. That's the essence of real seeking. Seeking his glory, seeking to glorify him, to get him at the center of yourself and for him to be the supreme object of your affection so that if nothing in your life circumstances ever changes, you've still got what you most desire, which is him. That's true seeking. And so if you came here today through the the window of felt needs, that's fine. We're so glad you're here. But please hear me say there is so much more, so much more, so, so much more deeply for you to enjoy than the provision of your felt needs. And I say that without dismissing your felt needs. You know, I'd love to talk with you about those needs, and we would love to meet those as a church if we're able. But seek Jesus. Seek Jesus, and he will fill every need that goes eternally deeper than any felt need. And it'll last eternally longer than the fulfillment of any felt need. The pervasiveness of sin, I hope you see, affects even our motives when seeking after God. Number four, sin affects our our wills, our wills. Verse 12, all have turned aside, it says. All have turned aside, echoing perhaps, you notice, Isaiah 53, verse 6, where we read, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We haven't just lost our way. We're not just sheep who've like wandered off and can't figure out where we're at anymore. We've actively turned aside. There's self-determination here. John Stott, in his commentary, he he defines sin as the revolt of the self against God, the the dethronement of God with a view to the enthronement of oneself. It's to live as if to say, my will be done. So turn aside, my will be done. And number five, sin affects our deeds. Our deeds, together they have become worthless, Paul continues in verse 12. No one does good, not even one. No one does good. Now, you might be tempted to ask here, how can Paul say that? You know, I know, I know plenty of people who do good. Um, you know, I know a lot of people who aren't Christians who do good in the world. In fact, if we're honest with ourselves as Christians sometimes, there's people who aren't Christians that do a lot more good in the world than we do. What's Paul getting at? Well, what he's getting at is the heart of the matter. Why do you do good? Is it to appear good? 
Is it to assuage a, 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 some sort of inner sense of guilt? Is it to be well-respected, well-thought of? Is it, is it to profit yourself in some way? Is it, you know, gosh darn it, we just need to be good moral people around here. Is it something like that? Is it to profit? You know, Charles Spurgeon, um, the great 19th century London preacher, he often told a story of a, of a gardener and a carrot. Have you heard this one before? The gardener and the carrot. And the, the gardener, so the story goes, grew this amazing carrot. It's just a carrot. He, he, he grows this amazing carrot and he decides to take it to the king because he loved the king. And he earnestly desired for the king to have this carrot. It's kind of weird. Right? He goes to the king, he gives the king the, the carrot. The, the king discerns his love. The, he discerns the gardener's love. He discerns his, his devotion. In fact, he, he discerns the fact that he desired nothing in return. Just wanted to give his king a carrot. It's only out of love that he gave him the carrot. And so as the gardener turned to leave, the king stopped him and said, My son, I want to give you some of my land so, so that you may produce an even greater crop. It, it's yours. Just take it, this land, right? And the gardener, he goes off. He rejoices. You know, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. This is fantastic. Now, a nobleman heard of this, and he thought, if that's what you can get for a carrot, you know, what might I get if I brought the king a horse? And so the, the nobleman, he comes before the king, and he brings him a very fine horse, the best horse that he had. But again, the king discerns the heart. And he says to the nobleman, you expect, to give, you expect me to give to you as I give to the gardener, don't you? But I won't. He says, you're, you're completely different from the gardener. The gardener, you see, gave me the carrot. You came in here and gave yourself the horse. The redeemed person, see, does good out of a complete sense of love and devotion and therefore out of a sense of freedom. Not to appear good, you're already counted as good before God. Not to assuage an inner sense of guilt, Jesus died to take away all your guilt. Not, not to be well respected, you're approved by the Father in heaven and not to profit in any way but simply out of love. But only in Christ do we live that way. Only in Christ can we live that way. Apart from Christ, Paul says, because of the pervasiveness of sin, no one does good. Not even one. And number six, sin affects our, our tongues. Look at verse 13. So the first line there says, their throat is an open grave. I don't know if you realize it or not, but that's Halloween language right there. You know, that's, that's scary. The, the, the image is that of a, of a throat as an open grave with a rotting corpse in it, all right? That, that's the imagery here, and he continues. that they're, they're, they're using their tongues to deceive. Like sin affects our tongue and that we deceive. James writes a whole chapter about it in James chapter 3 in the New Testament, right? He says the tongue's a fire. It can be a world of unrighteousness. Paul likens it here to the venom of asps. Snakes, which I think is even scarier than Halloween, right? Quoting Psalm 140, verse 3 there. Their, their mouth is full of curses and, and bitterness, he says, quoting Psalm 10, verse 7. Of course, Jesus said that it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks, pointing, as we know, to an even deeper problem. Again, it's not just acts of sin that are a problem. It's not just your words that are the problem. Paul is not merely addressing the ways we sin with our mouth and telling us we need to quit it. No, sin is much more pervasive. It's in your heart, but it manifests in your mouth. It affects your mouth. 
It also affects number seven, our relationships. Verse 15 says, their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. And on the way of peace, they have, they have not known. Now, I'm not going to go far into this one, but to point out that violence is an effective sin, physical violence, but also other kinds of violence that we do to one another in relationships. Anger, hate, jealousy, selfishness. It's the path of ruin and misery, and therefore it prevents us from experiencing peace, peace with one another. And then lastly, number eight, which perhaps sums them all up, sin affects our relationship to God. It affects our relationship to God. Verse 18, there's no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God. This is actually a quotation from Psalm chapter 36. And if we were to read a little bit more broadly in Psalm 36, we'd read, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes. There's the quotation. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. You see, the purpose of life is to fear and reverence God. That's the proper relationship for us as created to him, the creator. We're to fear him, and and not in the same way that you fear snakes or or Halloween weird stuff, right? We're to fear him in a reverent, awe-filled sense. We're to deem him and esteem him as holy and majestic and, and mighty and awesome. We're to keep him at the center and love him with all of our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength. And yet what sin does is it decenters God from our lives. It dethrones God. It de-gods God in our life by causing us to not fear him as we ought. Sin is pervasive. And just in case you're thinking, yeah, it is, wow. <laughs> it is pervasive in others' lives. <laughs> just in case you're thinking that, Right? Paul emphasizes throughout here, secondly, the universality of, of sin, right? It's, it's part of presenting his case. We, we've already seen it in verse 9, but look through it in the text again. He says, we, we've already charged that, that all, it doesn't say some, it doesn't say you know, most, it doesn't say the majority or the minority, it says all, 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 for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, for it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands. You see it here? No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. No one does good. Not even one. Eight. Eight of them, right? Look at this. The, The universality of sin is as pervasive as the pervasiveness of sin. You see, when we understand that sin is not just sinful acts, but sinfulness, that that's what has to be dealt with, we begin to see it everywhere. In fact, as we read more of Romans, we actually see Paul speak of sin at times as a power. Sin is described as reigning in chapter 5, verse 21. Sin is described as enslaving in chapter 6, verse 6. Ruling 
in chapter 6, verse 12. Exercising lordship, verse 14 of the same chapter. People are described as slaves to sin. Needing to be freed from sin. And this pervasive power of sin, it affects us all. Jump down to verse 19 with me. It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that how many mouths may be stopped? (laughs) Every mouth may be stopped. And how much of the world may be accountable to God? The whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. It's universal, friends. You cannot escape this. We are all accountable to God here. No one is free from it. Now, that doesn't mean that we're all equally sinful. No, but it does mean, to take it back into the courtroom, our legal condition is all the same. The evidence applies to all of us. We are all lost. There's not differing degrees of of lostness. There's there's no distinction, Paul has said. The wrath of God that is being revealed, according to Romans 1.18, is not being poured out a little here and a little more over there as if some will be able to withstand their dose. No, apart from Christ, the wrath of God comes fully and equally upon those whom are guilty, and we are all guilty none is righteous no not one and the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness in fact the the, the word here uh, that the ESV translates um, as accountable um, some other translations carry it as as guilty that's the sense guilty Why are we guilty? Well, verse 20, because by works of the law, no human being will be justified. No one can get themselves right before God. The the depravity is total. Our sinfulness is pervasive. Then look closer at verse 19. Because as we do, we should ask, we should ask this question. How is it that the whole world would be guilty before God because of the law given to the Jews? We'll trace it out. If the Jews, who last week we talked about, had the privilege of being God's covenant people, if they couldn't keep the law, then it follows that no one can, including the Gentiles, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the case. That's the case. It's what Paul has been laboring for here in this long section. It's been a long section, hasn't it, from Romans 1.18 all the way up through this? He's been laboring for this. He's presented his closing arguments now. He's proved beyond reasonable doubt. He's been saying Jews and Gentiles all have sinned. All are due God's wrath. And with that, the prosecution rests. The jury's dismissed. They're not going to deliberate long. There's no need. Paul has made an airtight, open and shut case. All that remains is to hear the verdict, guilty. And the sentencing, eternal punishment. And it is very tempting here to move quickly past this. 
You know, most of you know how this turns out. As we move on, we'll talk about justification next week and Jesus entering into the courtroom and taking the punishment for us, the, his righteous record, right, being credited to our account, and then us being declared not guilty, right? But let's not rush too quickly to that. We can look to that, and we will. We'll trust in that and rest in that and give glory for that. But before we do, I want to encourage you to come to the table this week more simply while the jury is out, so to speak. Remember what we said earlier. If we think of ourselves as basically good or even less than totally at odds with God, our grasp of the work of God in redemption will be defective. But if we humble ourselves under this terrible truth of our total depravity, the pervasiveness, the universality of sin, we will be in a position to see and to appreciate the glory and the wonder of the work of God. Like, I know no one really likes to hear a sermon that is internally, you know, just almost completely on sin. No one really enjoys that, do they? But, you know, but just because you don't enjoy it doesn't mean you don't need it, does it? In fact, sitting here at the end of Romans 3, verse 20, we are perhaps more prepared than ever to, pre- to appreciate the glory and the wonder of the work of God in and through Jesus Christ. And therefore, to come joyfully to this table this morning. Our case has been laid out pretty clearly, hasn't it? It's pretty, it's pretty darn clear. Beyond reasonable doubt, we should say. I mean, it's an open and shut case. Apart from Jesus, you and I are sinful. We are unrighteous. It's pervasive. We are guilty, and therefore, we deserve God's wrath, his punishment. We deserve death. And yet this table reminds us That in the gospel, we don't get what we deserve. Jesus took on what we deserve. This morning, as we reflect on our total depravity, there's a sense in which the bread and the wine today, it ought never taste better. They, They remind us, they picture forth for us what we deserved. Death. Our body broken our blood poured out and what we got instead new life through Christ's broken body and his blood poured out thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church feel free to share this audio with others but please do not alter or edit the content in any way for more information about Two Pillars Church please visit www.twopillarschurch.com